VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? Really, the conversation isn't about, uh, isn't a regulatory one. It's a, what is this? And frankly, it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck. So it's going to be shelved with other whiskeys. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. Thank you, thank you, thank you for tuning in. How are you all? This week, we're talking about booze, but not just any old booze. It's along the theme of a recent podcast uh, of, you know, lab-grown meat, alternative proteins, etc. We have brought on Alec Lee, who is the founder, co-founder, of a company called Endless West. And Endless West, six years old, and they make whiskey. Uh, but not like you and I know it. Uh, instead of the centuries-old process uh, involving grains and barrels and aging and that whole rigmarole, Endless West makes whiskey in a lab, uh, as Lee says it, uh, note by note, painstakingly putting this together on a molecular level. So this is a kind of a different take on a familiar theme, which is just this idea of reverse engineering food by kind of breaking it down into its most basic components and then rebuilding it um, in ways that are completely different from the way it's normally done. But the question I hear you ask is why? Why do this? Why fix something that isn't broken? And we're going to get into that and a lot more, including a taste test. Oh yes, of course. How could I pass that up? Anyhow, Ellis West, they just raised $21 million to expand. They've already got the whiskey, of course. They've also got a Moscato. They've also got a sake-like drink, of course, made without the rice. And I wanted to just talk to him about what they are up to how they plan to market this, and why of all the kind of drinks in the world they chose whiskey, this thing that is just freighted with history and legacy. And I think you'll find the answers interesting. And this is just another look at these early stages of this whole kind of new field of food engineering, um, if you will. And um, please do also stick around till the end because I have a bottle of Glyph, their whiskey, and I will let you know what I think of it. But for now, here is Alec Lee, the CEO and co-founder of Endless West. Enjoy. Well, first of all, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And here I have my glyph. Nice. Love it. Which I'm excited. You know, I haven't tried this yet. And I do. I lived in the UK for many years and so became a big fan of scotch and have a lot of Scottish friends who kind of schooled me in the ways, much of which I've forgotten now. But um, I'm intrigued. Um, 
you know, the process that got you to this, and for those who can't see, which is everybody, because it's a podcast, I'm holding up Glyph, which is um, your, would you call it a spirit whiskey with natural flavors? 43% alcohol. That is its official regulatory designation, yes. But anyhow, how did you get here? How did you get to making whiskey in a lab, and what is the process, and why? There's a lot of questions in that. Uh, <laughs> a, a, yeah. a lot of many ways to answer each question as well. Um, you know, we, we started Endless West back in late 2015. And the inspiration was uh, very high-end vintage wines that we saw on shelves that just were completely inaccessible to the the average Joe, if you will. Because of because of cost, because of cost, and just in some in some cases because of straight up rarity, there just aren't very many bottles left. You know, they're all in private collections, and they're just they're just not for sale. In some cases, it's it's a step further than that, and and that is you know some of these great vintages of wine just have an inherent shelf life. They're they're not good a hundred years later. You want to drink them in their prime, and so if something there were. There's probably been many great wines that are no longer great, not by virtue of storage, but just because they've they've aged past that that moment uh, at which they're at their best. So we were kind of in this space of both my co-founder and I have biotechnology backgrounds, and back around that time frame, there were a lot of companies that were starting to look at you know the the molecular reconstruction of food, if you will. At the time, it was still pretty early days for the food technology space in general. And even Impossible Foods hadn't launched a first product yet. They hadn't really even come out with what they were doing in any big public way. So it was it was a nascent space. And no one was really working on these sort of like high-end luxury food products, if you will. Really trying to deconstruct those. A lot of the work is you know vegan, mission-driven you know, focusing on, on the staple food products. And so we knew that there, there could be application in, in, this, in this approach of this technology, but we wanted to apply it in this space where we know that there's a deep sense of history and place and people. And so we, we embarked on making wines in the early days, but switched over to, uh, to really working with whiskey largely because of various regulatory challenges that we came across. And the core platform is reasonably agnostic to what the product is. So at the point where the regulators sort of gave us a, a little sandbox to play in, you know, whiskey was a, was a logical place uh, given some of those constraints. So what was your background? You said you're, you're, you have a biotech background. You know, did you grow up here? You, did you grow up in the U.S.? If so, where? And kind of what, how, what were you doing before this? I grew up in the Detroit area. I had actually moved here right around the time that we started the company. My, my co-founder and I were previously working on a stem cell technology that, that we were developing. For? Another startup. So it was, it was another startup that was doing uh, stem cell extraction for uh, tissue engineering research. So was, we were primarily selling these stem cells for, uh, for academic researchers. Oh, I see. I see. And did that just kind of not float your boat, basically? It became much more of a consultancy. And we didn't really want to do a consultancy. We wanted to do a, a manufacturing operation. And 
we so we own all of our manufacturing now and it's nice to be able to see a physical product that that's the fruit of your labor and, and to see it be able to produce be produced in a mass way uh, and so how did you end up coming out to california or where were you when you were working for that tissue the the tissue startup so that was also here in san francisco i, I was actually getting an, an mba uh, at the time so i left that i was living in boston and i left after the first year to uh to join what ultimately ended up becoming that that startup i see i see so was there a, a i don't know a moment when you decided to kind of chuck it with the with that first company and you know start your own thing you know creating wines it's an interesting question so my co-founder is the one who came up with the idea he was a napa valley winery trip and he sort of comes back to me we were already working on the stem cell company and he sort of explains this problem to me of how he wanted to try this bottle of wine that was behind this plexiglass case. And it was really there only for display purposes. You know, it wasn't something that anyone was going to be able to try. And so he says, like, look, we've, we've got a lab. If we take a step back from the history and the marketing and, and everything about that, this is a bottle of mostly water and alcohol and various other molecules. And if we can figure out what those molecules are, source them all, we should be able to recombine it and make something for ourselves, right? And I remember sitting there in that in that room for what was a very long pause. And I said to him, this is either the worst idea I've ever heard or the best idea I've ever heard, but we have to figure out which one it is. <laughs> so it really was a nights and weekends project for us for mm. the first six months or so not quite six months but somewhere in that ballpark we were just playing around and seeing if, if it could be done and, and it wasn't until once we had some proof of concept some basic prototype that we started checking out to see if there was investor interest in it and, and that's when the piece of the puzzle really, really started to come together. It was actually a friend of ours who leaked a little bit of what we were doing on Twitter. And it was some early press that we got through Twitter that really got that snowball, snowball running. Right, right, right. And so what was the proof of concept? Was it a, I don't know, a Napa Cabernet or something like that? You know, that where you'd be like, look, we just, we just created this in the lab overnight. We didn't have to wait for, you know... We didn't have to grow grapes and ferment it and let it age for years and all that kind of good stuff. So it was the predecessor to what since became our Moscato-like product that we that we launched through Molecular Exclusive. So we were developing that largely through a series of happy accidents in terms of uh, developing those those early prototypes. We sort of landed that it was actually pretty close to Moscato, and we mm. just kind of ran with that. And then we we tabled it while we worked on a lot of the regulatory stuff to, to get within wine. But that core tech that we had developed, we then applied to Spirits for, for our first launch with Glit. Got you. Got you. And you talk about um, the regulatory hurdles. So what was the problem? What is the problem in wine? Like, why did you ultimately decide, you know, like this, this is kind of too heavy of a lift. Let's go for some kind of something that's a bit easier or there's less regulatory hurdles. Like what is the difficulty in the wine world? Yeah. So the big thing is 
at a federal level, beer, wine, and spirits are all regulated quite differently. Uh, and they have their own very defined standards of manufacture. There's obviously subcategories of, of each of those, but unsurprisingly, the core tenet of what constitutes a wine is that it's a derivative of primarily grape or, or some fruit, the, the fermented product of, of a juice of those fruits. And for us, when we build our products from the ground up, as we describe it, really, we're working with a blank canvas of water and alcohol. That alcohol needs to be as pure and as clean as possible, right? We, we don't want it to have other stuff in it because that we can't control those things for both consistency and if there's too much of something, you know, we, we can't remove in, in a selective way. So for us, using this neutral base requires some purification of that alcohol and purification, you know, there's two ways to do that. You either distill or use reverse osmosis. Either of those is considered a distilled spirits product. So right out the gate, we're considered a distilled spirits manufacturer by the federal government, which means the thing that we make is inherently not wine by federal standards. And that means it can't be sold as, distributed as, taxed as, labeled as a wine. Everything needs to be within the uh, distilled spirits category. So that was the primary trigger where we said, all right, if we're a distilled spirits manufacturer, where do we see similar effects or, or similarities between spirits and wine world? You know, a lot of it really is in the brown spirits. It has a really deep sense of place and history and, and people behind it. And in, in a way that other types of spirits, you know, the vodkas of the world don't necessarily always have those. So whiskey felt very natural for us in terms of where it made sense to sort of apply this tech. Plus, you know, there's supply chain issues with it. There's, there's cost issues with it. You know, it, it's a non-trivial exercise to go from raw grain to a whiskey. And so we felt that our process could bring some advantages to the market as well. Right, right. And so a couple questions. One, so how was the process of actually going to VCs? Because there is, you know, there's, we've been covering it recently, you know, again, in the cultivated meat world, you know, five years ago, there was one company, now there's 70 plus, and there's tons of money all of a sudden flowing into the sector. But back in 2015, as you say, this is all pretty nascent and sounds a little bit, you know, a little bit bonkers, like, okay, we're going to make, you know, whiskey in a lab as opposed to, you know, the tried and true process and, and take that out to market. I mean, how was the, how was the perception there and what, why was this suddenly possible when it previously wasn't or was it and people just hadn't thought to do it? You know, I, I think that the industry's been trying to do similar things for a very long time. Mm. I think there's been some basic technical successes, but generally speaking, it seems that the application is largely, let's take some bulk base product, let's say uh, uh, a bulk wine that itself is no good, and figure out how to modify. Two buck chuck. Sure. Uh, <laughs> wh wh whatever it is, yeah. per perhaps even standards outside of uh, outside of what we consider drinkable by, by yeah. most people. You know, let, let's take let's take something that is truly unremarkable and, and barely palatable, and let's figure out how to modify it 
so that we can make it taste like a $10, $15, $20 bottle of wine. That kind of work had been done for the past few decades. And it seems like in the past, there were some industry attempts to launch similar products, but I don't think the market was really ready for, I don't think consumers were really ready for this level of product innovation. And so I think a lot of what's happened over the last five years is, you know, consumer awareness of the lack of uh, sustainability of many of the products that we, that we consume. And just the fact that we can't continue doing this indefinitely, you know, the nineties was a very, very different story as far as how people thought about what food is, how it should be made and, and the level of, of awareness about sustainability matters. And so, yeah, I think it, we've sort of come at the right time. Certainly. I, I definitely think that this space is sort of a rising tide lifts all boats kind of situation. The fact that impossible and beyond and so many other food tech companies have done so well has certainly helped with general consumers really being accepting of what we're doing too. But of course, there there were major technology innovations that happened in the early 2000s and the mid 2000s that leveraged properly in in our space helps us get to get to this end goal. So I think if we were doing this in the 90s, it, it would be entirely impractical. But today, it, it's certainly substantially easier. So it's a confluence of a couple things. And why is it easier? Are there, and I know that's probably a very complicated question, but are, are, are there one or two or three things that, you know, technologically or scientifically that you are doing now that, again, you talk about in the 90s would have just been kind of unthinkable or wildly expensive or impossible? So a lot of it is hardware on the analytical chemistry sides. A lot of what we have to do is figure out you know, what is the molecular constitution of a wine or a whiskey and what really makes them tick. And quantification of those molecules is really, really hard. So it's only over the last 10, 15 years that we've gotten to a point where, you know, the technology is good enough to, uh, to do that. And is that, is that kind of machine learning, um, you know, software on this hardware? I mean, what is the hardware that you're using to analyze that? It's not so much machine learning as it is actual hard, you know, machine learning is, is very much a software fix for, uh, for data analysis. This is not a data analysis problem. It's an actual data generation problem. Okay. So it's literally the hardware that you use to quantify it and to identify the molecules. And just, uh, and again, uh, I'm trying to like visualize what that, what that is. Is this, what is that hardware? So it's various forms of mass spectrometry and, and chromatography. Okay. Uh, so these are, these are analytical chemistry instruments that are used to actually break apart a complex mixture uh, or even break apart individual molecules and to identify them and to quantify them. And then from that, you can effectively engineer a facsimile or create certain tones and tastes and colors and all that kind of thing to kind of make something that's as good or better than the real, th you know, quote unquote, the real thing. So facsimiles are uniquely different from a uniquely different challenge than what we're doing. So we definitely want to, let me, let me sort of describe it this way. Even though there's been a lot of progress on the technology side over the last 20 years, 
we're still, I think, in the reasonably early days of being able to do true, deep-level quantitation work for analytical chemistry like this. And so the analogy that I'd use is, you know, today we have digital scanners, mm -hmm. and so you can get really, really good facsimiles or scans of, you know, a, a, a document, a photograph. But 40 years ago, when it was all analog, your photocopies were always grainy, and they were always sort of unpredictably grainy. Yeah. So you'd never really get the same photocopy twice. And that's kind of where, where we are now, is that you can look at the two side by side, and you can see where they're the same thing at some fundamental level. And also, you can tell that they're not truly the same thing. So you can taste the difference, you can smell the difference. So we're not really at a place yet where we can say, all right, we can just copy any wine, any whiskey that's out there. But what the technology does enable us to do is to create this, and this is where it becomes more of a data processing, you know, an ML, a data library kind of problem, is now we can create these scans of dozens, if not hundreds, of different whiskeys or wines out in the market figure out what really makes them all tick and design them in our own image sort of from, from the ground up. You know, what are, what are the flavor vectors, if you will, that make up or, or the flavor molecules that make up certain flavor vectors? And what do we want to actually create on the basis of that new, on the basis of that new knowledge? Right, right, right. Get more of the Times and the Sunday Times for less than a pound a day. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley to start your free trial. That's once again, thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley so that they know I sent you. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And so for a lot of people, it's kind of like electricity. People don't know how their whiskey's made. They just drink it. But I was wondering if you just do a quick kind of like, what does a normal whiskey what that process involved and then how that compares to this glyph in terms of the difference. Cause I imagine that the difference is both in time that it takes to make and the resources that are used and the ingredients are kind of wildly different. So there's like a kind of a side by side you can kind of describe of, of those processes. I think that would really, that kind of illuminates what, you know, the thing is here. Sure. So I guess starting at the beginning, which is also, in, in this case, I suppose, the end of the story. You know, the tasting notes on Glyph are ultimately reminiscent of that of any other any other whiskey, but it is also its its own whiskey. You know, there there's notes of oak spice and vanilla and caramel and cherry, and you'd get those on any sort of whiskey off the shelf. At the true beginning, they are very very different, even though they'll they'll converge and end up at a place where you know, any whiskey off the shelf and glyph are at a molecular level, they are whiskey. Yeah. And so traditional whiskeys, you know, will will be a mix of grains or a single grain for, for certain single grain scotches, for example, a mix of grains, and they'll be fermented into what resembles really a beer. It's, it's called a distiller's beer. They just obviously don't add the hops. And then they'll boil that, collect the alcohol, you know, depending on the recipe and how clean they want that distillate, they might distill it a few times. But a lot of it really is intended to retain the essence of those grains. So you'll have this white whiskey then that is usually around 135 proof, if not higher. Or I believe that the standard is a minimum of 135 proof. And, and then it goes into, and again, this is where you have divergence in terms of whether you're making a scotch or a bourbon but it goes into a barrel for some length of time it absorbs the characteristic of uh, of the wood and or the char and then you end up with an aged spirit uh, you, you're going to lose some of that over time some of it absorbs into the wood and you can't get it out and so you're always going to end up with less than you originally put in but the longer it it's there the sort of more deep characteristics the more full-bodied it, it becomes uh, as a result of that aging process so that's a high level of, of a traditional whiskey for us we'll start with a, a start at a similar place which is our alcohol ultimately comes from grain primarily from corn for us although it technically doesn't matter because instead of only distilling it two or three times to retain the essence of those grains the alcohol that we're sourcing will come in as pure as possible, so almost 100% alcohol. And when that's happened, when it's been distilled so many times, it is completely devoid of really any other any other flavor. And, and that's exactly what we want. So we've got, then got this blank canvas. We've got water, we've got the alcohol, and then we'll have various other plant and yeast extracts. So the, the core thesis of our approach is that the molecules you find in one food or beverage, you can find them in other places in nature as well. And so there's nothing necessarily in a whiskey or in a wine that cannot be found in some other plant, yeast, some other place in nature. 
And so the exercise for us is once we've identified what those molecules are that we actually want to use to imbue this blank canvas with those flavor vectors, we then have to go out and source them. And in some cases, we can commercially source them already extracted, already pure. Those extractions, you know, they look a lot like the creation of a tincture, let's say, or, you know, an extract of, of a vanilla bean you know, for vanilla extract, and then the subsequent distillation thereof to purify some of those extracts. So these are all very familiar processes. They're just applied in ways that are perhaps unexpected by an average consumer. But it's still all derived from some plants, some yeast, you know, wood, etc. Somewhere out in nature. And then the things we can't commercially source, we'll extract them in-house. So, for example, with glyphs specifically, all of the color comes directly from wood. We do that extraction. We do that overnight using our own internal process. And that creates a part of a concentrate that, that will then use. It sort of concentrates the essence of that wood, if you will that gives us the color and certain molecules that we can't commercially source. We combine that with these various other extracts and we ultimately end up with something that is, that is glyph. That is once mixed together at a molecular level, it's whiskey, even though the mechanism by which we made it doesn't resemble at all the, the traditional way of aging. And so, you know, in, in the case of like, certainly scotch, it's, you know, many, many years in the barrels. I mean, it can kind of, it's almost, I don't know what the kind of max is, but, you know, seven years, 11 years, whatever it may be. This, theoretically, could you just pump out overnight forever? You know, in, in other words, is that whole process you just described, how quickly does that happen? Because also when you think about um, some of the rest the restrictions of, you know, traditional alcohol production, a lot of it is just the aging process and, and how long that takes. Yeah, so from beginning to end, it's just about 24 hours a little bit less. And certainly that does impact the the regulatory, in terms of naming, the parameters that we have to live with. Which is why it's called, what is it? Spirit whiskey. Spirit whiskey with natural flavors. Yeah. Yes. Although that is because we're starting with something that the government considers to be called a spirit whiskey. So we've since expanded to, and, and really worked on various other, both product and regulatory innovations where we could now call it a bourbon whiskey with natural flavors if we wanted to. But Glyph was really our, our first baby. Uh, and that was in the early days of a lot of our regulatory work and a lot of our R&D work. So we've expanded far beyond that. But Glyph sort of continues to to be called that just because it's that's what it always was. Right. And so this is 24 hours. What would so like a, a bullet or a whistle pig or something like that, how long would that take to get into a bottle you know the industry is definitely moving away from age statements mm. as much as they can and so you're you're likely going to see sort of some of these more mass market brands being between the three to seven year range and has there been any pushback with where glyph is put in the store like where it is allowed on the shelf i mean it says spirit whiskey so i presume you can just be in the whiskey aisle or the whiskey section but I don't know if that was absolutely. I don't know if there was uh, that took a lot of doing or wh whether it's it was pretty easy because it is molecularly it is whiskey. That's that's probably the easiest part of of what we do. The government doesn't I don't believe in any state dictate how retailers can put things on their on their shelves. You know they, they have broad discretion about what goes where, and so 
really the conversation isn't about uh, isn't a regulatory one it's a what is this and frankly it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck so it's from it's going to be shelved with other whiskeys right and do you have a sense of of kind of you know, well, well. First of all, how widely available is this? I mean, do you, is it basically you sell this mostly online, or is it in stores across the country, or internationally, or like you know how 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 where is it right now? Almost all of it is in the U.S. in about a dozen states, and largely in sort of more boutique kind of shops. So, you know, you're not going to find it in any chains except for Total Wines in California. So you'll find it in stores and then you'll also find it in uh, in bars and restaurants. And have you done any, um, I don't know, focus groups or have any sense of kind of, is there a generational break between people who are like all for it? Because that, that seems to be certainly the case when you talk about kind of plant-based meats or lab-grown meats, as opposed to, you know, slaughtered animals is there a generational kind of attitude that you see between you know in in terms of you know what you guys are doing we thought there would be much more of one than we've actually seen Mm. which has been pleasantly surprising in some ways you know it's frustrating in terms of the lack of predictability because there's definitely a lot of younger people who have a very traditional organic natural view of the world that you know it has to be the old school way if i could slap a stereotypical label on it sort of like the the hipster view of Mm. of like oh no no no, i'm uh this is this is old school and it's it's like legit and it's real i'm gonna write a a letter about this you know on my typewriter type of thing right exactly exactly and so it's not really generational uh because and we've seen that, especially when we go to conferences like Whiskey Fest, for example, that attract a lot of multi-generational, hyper-traditional people. And we've been able to sort of like fill rooms talking about what we're doing. And, and you know, across generations, people come in and be super excited. And what we've seen is that it's much more of just an attitude of, than it is a generational thing, of what is exciting about like new things there's a lot of older people who are just excited about trying like what's next i want new flavor profiles i want something different i want to hear new stories and i kind of liken it to you know the industry for years has just been doing westerns you know like old hollywood was was primarily just like a lot of westerns yeah and then suddenly we're like you know what there's probably some other genres we could do Let's do a, let's do sci-fi. And so it's not so much about getting people to say, okay, now I'm done with this one genre and I'm just going to move all of my buying over to the next. It's about sometimes I feel like watching one kind of movie and other times I want to watch something else. And in that perspective, I think there's a lot less of a disruption, Silicon Valley tech company coming in, breaking things, and much more of a... You know, what are the new narratives? What are the new stories that are being told? And am I excited about trying new things? Or do I fundamentally believe that the only thing that's ever going to be valuable is the hyper-traditional way of thinking about doing things? And you guys just raised $21 million. What what are you going to do with that money? We're going to do a lot of things with it. Um, <laughs> we're largely going to expand a lot of our R&D work and expand our manufacturing facility. We've, we've pretty much outgrown 
our capabilities here in, in San Francisco where we're manufacturing everything today. Uh, and so we, we want to get a larger facility and uh, somewhere in, in a more practical place for manufacturing longer term and, and really just grow the business. So what else are you working on? Because, I mean, you started out with wine. Is wine still something that you're interested in? Or is it that at least regulatory, regulation-wise, that's kind of an impossibility? Or there, you know, what else are you looking in terms of new stuff? There is a path forward for wine, but it's probably a couple years down the line. Not so much because it's going to take that long, but just because we don't really have the bandwidth for it. And I think that's the big thing with capital raises is it's not necessarily only for getting your product to market, but it's also about how much time can you devote to all the different things that you want to work on. And so we can either work on a handful of things at a time, or we can raise more capital and work on a lot of them at a time and really kind of build our IP base and, and build our moat. And, and so that's really what we, what we want to be able to do. Right, right, right. And have you thought about, you know, how you kind of get Glyph to kind of become known or become a big brand? Is that, are you, you know, obviously one of the most effective routes, at least in alcohol, is, you know, find a really big celebrity to, you know, become the face of it. So is, you know, George Clooney had tequila. Is he going to be, you know, George Clooney glyph guy? Well, George Clooney is, is pretty tied up right now, as far as I'm aware, <laughs> with, with tequila work. It, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think the quick and obvious answer is that when we tie ourselves to a celebrity, we dramatically increase the risk profile of that celebrity and their their star. And if something happens to that celebrity, then it happens to us as well. Yeah. And that's a risky proposition for someone that doesn't really work for us. But I think the bigger issue is when we tie ourselves to a celebrity, the brand is then about them. It's not about the product anymore. And what we ultimately value about the thing that we've created is that it is inherently very different. It is unique. It should be able to stand on its own and not be drowned out by some big face. Right. It is worth probably mentioning that a lot of our work now is actually having this technology power other products and, and, and other brands. And so I think where the, the long game that we want to play here isn't about building our own brands and becoming a brand company in that sense, but really is about building technology that enables other brands to be successful, either because we can create a much more robust product much more quickly, much more cost-effectively, uh, much more sustainably. Like There's various ways that our product can outperform the sort of traditional ones that are out there. And I think that's a compelling proposition for, for a lot of prospective brand owners. And so that, that's where we would rather create a technology that doesn't require us to own and control and run and market brands as much as we want to be able to do the thing that we're really good at, which is develop this technology, develop great products, and get them into the hands of as many consumers as possible. Right. And you talked to, uh, at the beginning about landing on whiskey because it has this sense of kind of place, of legacy, of kind of a bit of a of story to it. If you think about it another way, it's that could be seen as kind of like a surprising choice because it is theoretically, if you are kind of 
going into this industry that has done something a certain way for years and years and years. And I'm thinking here about like Scotch in particular, you know, kind of in the Highlands or wherever it may be, you know, there's a whole like centuries long history of how this was done. And it would seem to lend itself to people pushing back and saying, this is BS or what you're doing isn't really what is, you know, isn't real or whatever it may be. It feels like it's kind of a risky strategy, but perhaps I'm thinking about it wrong because maybe if you can show that you can replicate that, it shows the power of what you're doing. I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, I, I think that you sort of closed the question with exactly the way that we're thinking about it is certainly it's a lot riskier because of the long-standing tradition uh, behind a lot of these products. But at the same time, it means that if we can crack that nut and do it well, that we've ultimately demonstrated that that our approach can create exceptional products in a category where people already care so deeply about the quality of that product. It just showcases how good our technology really is. And I think that that says something about the space in general. And it says something about what we what we've been able to develop. You know, I don't think it's as interesting to create you know, an alternate version of a product that nobody cares about. It's where nobody really cares about its flavor. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, that was what I was going to ask also, you know, it would be very easy for you guys to market this as kind of green whiskey. You know, <laughs> I'm sure they... It would, yeah, yeah. But obviously, you're you're very much not doing that. And I don't know if you guys thought about that, or again, you're just trying to... Dis- have it stand on its own two legs and be like, look, this is just a really good whiskey you can buy in a store and you might like it for mixed drinks or on its own over on the rocks, whatever it may be. Uh, But just like just being much more straightforward in the message as opposed to writing on any number of the, of the efficiencies or improvements that you guys are working on as a way to kind of market it. You know, sustainability I think is, is a tough needle to thread in food products. And, and the reason is because I think there's this sort of unspoken understanding, many, many times spoken understanding, that the healthier version of something, the more sustainable version of something, is inherently worse yes. than the traditional counterpart. You know, vegan burgers are just not as good as the real thing. And so what we didn't want was to sort of color people's expectations about oh i'm begrudgingly going to drink this because it's better for the planet it is worse but i'm going to suck it up and do it anyway because i feel bad about the earth that is not how we wanted to sort of prime people to to consume our products so we wanted it to be able to stand out on its own on its own merits and if it performs well great and if not you know, it's not because we just like missed the mark on, you know, the, the consumer messaging around sustainability, right? Like, we we wanted to be able to live on its on its own two feet, right? Um, and how are how are the hangovers? And I and I ask because it's something that I feel like every young person slash college student learns early on when they have no money and they drink really bad alcohol. You know, you feel worse the next day because you're putting crap into your body 
So how does that have you, I don't know if you've done it, if any quantitative or qualitative uh, assessment of that, but I'd be interested to see because again, obviously, it's a very specific process you're using to make this. Well, I, I can tell you off the bat that we have not done double blind, placebo controlled, <laughs> multi centered uh, clinical trials on the on the hangovers as a result of our of our product. Right. Well, now maybe that's your One market. The... Maybe that's your marketing pitch. Is like you use your tw- maybe. use your twenty one million to do a double blind placebo, the whole deal, and then you can right, say oh, right. this is like you know it's better hangovers. Maybe yeah, maybe we should spend all of the money on that. I think Although you should. it would be a lot more than twenty one million dollars <laughs> yes, to it do would, it. it Part of our challenge is that even if we had seen something, we we wouldn't be able to market it as such because they're they're we're expressly prohibited against marketing any health claims in conjunction with alcoholic products for probably really really good reason. Yeah, um, that seems fair. Yeah, anecdotally, people have told us that they experience less of a hangover. Now, um, we would presume that that's because it's a much cleaner set of products and inputs that are much more tightly controlled. But personally, I can't say that, you know, officially, it's just something that has been said to us. So so it needs to be taken with many grains of salt. Right. Okay, well, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna taste this now because it's noon. And I have work to do. But I'm going to taste this sure. tonight, uh, and I'll report back, uh, you know, on the pod and um, let everybody know how it was. Yeah, let us know. I will. I will. Um, well, thank you very much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, here we go. Here's my glyph. Let me see if I can open this thing with one hand, holding a mic. I'm just going to drink this neat. Um, just a little bit. I got. I still have work to do. You understand. Okay. Now it's kind of like honey colored. Um, it's a bit lighter than what I would normally expect from like a whiskey or bourbon. Um, and on the, the bottle, of course, this is neither of those things. It is a spirit whiskey with natural flavors which doesn't sound terribly enticing, but it's kind of cool looking. Um, Okay, let's see how this thing tastes. Mm. (coughs) Excuse me. Wow, it's quite nicey, got some, nicey, I'm not drunk, I swear. It's quite spicy, uh, but it's got a nice flavor to it. It's kind of, Actually, a fairly complex little beverage here. It is, it feels like um, bourbon-y to me. Uh, sorry, rather r- rye. It's got a bit more spice to it, rye whiskey. But it's um, it's pretty good. It's kind of weird that this did not take seven years, but took less than 24 hours. So that's my, mm, oof. That is my uh, unofficial take. Um, I would drink this. This bottle probably won't last well it'll last in our house but you know i will drink this it's it's quite nice who to thunk it anyway yeah it's a brave new world and with that our time is done this week uh i hope you enjoyed uh this week's show i did i'm enjoying it still but anyhow um thank you for tuning in please tell your friends tell your neighbors do a rating and review it always helps 
And if you want to read what I'm up to in the paper, please do check it out. There's some fun stuff happening in other quarters of the tech world. So please do go online at thetimes.co.uk or get a paper or subscribe. Um, keeps me employed, which is, you know, a good thing for me. Anyhow, thank you as ever. We will be back next week. Have a fabulous weekend. Stay safe, stay sane. But I feel like I have to say that less these days. Obviously, it still applies, but it doesn't have the same, uh, let's say, urgency or fear or anxiety as it once did, which is which is a good thing. Um, anyhow, talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Want more out of this podcast? Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley to read articles based on these interviews, broader discussions of the topics covered here, and of course, the amazing work of all my colleagues across the rest of the paper, all for less than one pound a day. Start your free trial now by going to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.